Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence. Hello and a very warm welcome to Season 3, Episode 6 of Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence's Compliance Clarified podcast. My name's Susanna Hammond and I'm Senior Regulatory Intelligence Expert here at TRRI. Now, in this sixth episode of Series 3, we are considering the persistence of market abuse, not just as a result of hybrid working, where people are perhaps out of sight and out of mind, but as a continuing supervisory focus. And for this, I'm delighted to say I'm joined by Rachel Walcott to take a look at where we are now and what compliance officers need to consider in the continuing battle against market abuse and manipulation. Hi. There has been market abuse and markets manipulation simply as long as there have been markets. In terms of the current financial services marketplace, there are seen to be three main elements or indeed offences or misconduct, which are the use of non-public information, basically insider dealing, the deliberate distortion or manipulation of the price setting mechanisms of financial instruments, in other words, lying to the market and getting your benefit out of that, or simply the dissemination of false or misleading information. Now, there are two broad definitions that are also pertinent. Insider dealing, where a person who has information not available to other investors, so for example, a director with knowledge of a takeover bid, makes use of that information for personal gain. And then the flip on that is market manipulation, where a person knowingly gives out false or misleading information, for instance, about a company's financial circumstances, in order to influence the price of a share or a derivative or whatever, again, for personal gain. So what does reasonable look like now? What does good or indeed better practice look like now for compliance officers when they are in the thick of this with preventative and detective controls and within their firm's risk management framework, trying to oversee for market abuse. Tricky one, and always evolving. So Rachel, where are we in the UK, in the UK's regulatory stance? Hi, Susanna. Um, Nice to be here again. Um, I'd say the top level is that uh, the UK uh, is uh, still using the EU's market abuse regulation, which is something we could talk about a little later on. And at a very top level, that means that firms need to have systems and controls in place to uh, monitor trades for certain certain patterns of that could be potentially mar- market abuse and investigate them. And in most cases, uh, firms are supposed to have automated systems to do this, um, which we can, I will expand upon a little uh, later. Um, in addition to that, uh, the FCA has its own uh, uh, database of trades that it can uh, that it does use to uh, detect uh, market abuse. And in terms of uh, enforcement actions, we've had a mix of bans and fines over the years, a mix of uh, civil enforcement cases and criminal cases. Um, the biggest case to date is the well-known uh, Operation Tabernula case, which 
uh, encompassed activity that took place between uh, 2006 and 2010, quite a long period, and ultimately saw, uh, I think it was five or six insider dealers, um, including some very senior authorized people, end up in jail. And one of the uh, individuals received a, um, I think it was a four and a half year jail sentence. And that is, as we were saying before, Susanna, that one's a bit dusty, but it's, it's, it, that was a big one. And then there's of course the more use, recent UBS compliance officer, uh, case for insider dealing, which you're going to talk about a little more. And there is a n newer and similar case. The FCA has brought uh, newer and similar to the UBS case, um, where two brothers, one of whom worked at an investment bank and the other at a law firm, uh, were have been accused of insider dealing, and the FCA is taking criminal action against them. Now, in this case, the brother who worked at the investment bank uh, used was working in its conflicts department. So it seemed like a kind of compliance function uh, where he had access to um, inside information. And uh, the pair uh, also fraudulently obtained a loan to fr fund their insider dealing trading, uh, allegedly. Allegedly. This case has been delayed a couple of times in terms of going to trial because um, of the pandemic and whatnot. Um, so more recently, in terms of cases that have somewhat concluded, I say somewhat because um, when, as everyone knows, when you're banned, you can appeal. So more recently, we had a hedge fund manager. This was in 2020. He was banned essentially for for spoofing. He was placing large and the FCA claimed misleading orders for contracts for difference to that he, the FCA says, did not intend to execute to give a false impression of interest in the market. Now he was fined a hundred thousand pounds and banned, but I do, I think he's appealing. Uh, we had an ICAP fine for flying and printing, which is kind of similar to spoofing. It's uh, also giving a false impression about interest in uh, uh, in the market for certain securities. Uh, that was a, a transatlantic activity that also in, in, uh, involved the um, U.S. Um, uh, regulators, and that. I think wound up, that was also a little bit of ancient history at this point. I think the fine was about 3 million pounds. Um, you mentioned misreporting of financial statements to mislead the market. We've had that too. Uh, the big grocery store chain here in the UK uh, admitted they committed market abuse uh, in relation to a trading update they published in 2014, which gave a false and misleading impression about the publicly traded Tesco shares and bonds. Um, Tesco had to pay a redress scheme. Some of their directors were brought to trial by the FO, but for various odd reasons that trial collapsed. <laughs> it was a weird one. It, it involved people 
getting sick in the courtroom and all kinds of things. It, 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 it was, it's the kind of thing you wonder what ever happened with that. Um, we have another similar case to the Tesco case with a software firm called Red Centric. Um, they were censured for the FC, by the FCA for uh, similarly misleading statements or statements of accounts. And some of their employees were supposed to be going on trial for accounting fraud. But that's something that has also sort of been uh, obscured by the time of the, of the pandemic. And I haven't heard an update on that case in a while. But more broadly, kind of getting back to the Mar point, uh, the FCA has taken action against a number of firms for inadequate systems and controls for monitoring and um, detecting potential market abuse. Um, firms buy off-the-shelf systems from technology providers, and these systems uh, track all the trades that your traders are doing and kind of tests them against a uh, non-exhaustive list of scenarios that are in MAR. And what firms have been fined for, essentially, is <laughs> buying the systems and then not calibrating them, um, not bothering to kind of turn them on. Uh, just, I don't know trying to reboot, turning them on and off again, it's having, they have controls, but they're not using them. And another uh, case was similar in terms of calibration of these uh, monitoring and surveillance systems, which was uh, one firm had uh, set it up along the lines of uh, U.S. Uh, market abuse expectations, and the FCA came in and fined them and told them they needed to recalibrate along the lines of MAR. And um, I'll, we'll have a bunch of these uh, uh, links to the these cases in in the show notes, so people can get a get a, if people are interested, they can get a taste of uh, what's what's been happening and from the FCA point of view. Rachel, thank you so much for that roundup of what's been going on in the UK and picking up on the Mar thread. And actually, I'm going to focus on the other side of the channel, but the overarching focus on prevention of market abuse, trying to have a credible deterrence approach to the whole thing is pretty much universal. And the French, the AMF, um, have taken some really pretty substantive actions themselves and a case from just this summer in August they concluded an investigation into a series of wash trades on the euro stocks 50 futures market and that was dating back to 2015 and they found that that was constituting a various forms of market abuse that the firms involved did not have the appropriate systems and controls also back to the calibration point that Rachel picked up and I, I, for those of you unfamiliar with the AMF, their enforcement committee ha is made up of judges and professionals and are very distinct and separate. And they have complete freedom to make decisions and take sanctions action. So this particular case featured Amundi, which is one of the biggest asset managers in Europe. 
They, Amundi Asset Management itself fined 25 million euros issued a warning. Amundi Intermediation uh, fined 7 million and warning. The other side of these wash trades was Tollet Prebon, 5 million euro fine. Two of the traders from Amundi each banned for 10 years. The trader at Tollet Prebon fined a mere 20,000 euros. Now, there are several key threads and lessons in here, actually a number of which pick up on what Rachel was talking about. Calibration of systems, the Eurostoxx 50 futures market. I wouldn't blame you at all if you've never heard of it. It is a very small marketplace. And for Amundi, it's a vanishingly small part of their business. And it was just happened to end up being the place where actually the systems and controls didn't quite extend. There were workarounds and exceptions and all of the rest of it. So collusion and information sharing that shouldn't have been shared all were enabled to happen because their oversight, their risk and compliance oversight didn't quite extend to this particular marketplace. And so the AMF was made a big point of saying it doesn't really matter how big or how small any part of your business activity is. You have to comply with your market abuse obligations and your professional obligations no matter what. And the other thing they were very clear on, and to be fair, to be absolutely fair, back in 2015, there was a different iteration of the market abuse regulation. So... It's not quite the same rules that the rest of Europe is now currently operating under, but the French regulator took a very deliberate policy stance to take a very broad interpretation of what constitutes market abuse and market manipulation. And I think it's absolutely fair to say that they will continue to take that very broad interpretation, no matter what um, iteration of MAR we end up with, because again, MAR is, <clears throat> excuse me, back under review at the European level. And we'll, we'll get into that a wee bit more. So cases like the AMF case, like the Red Centric case, like the ICAP fine, all of them have a lot of lessons for firms to learn. And I would absolutely recommend to risk and compliance folks right around the world keep up to date and read all of those sanctions notices because there may well be something you can think, ah, actually, have we got that covered? Could I prove to a regulator we've done the right things in the right way? And whatever effort you put in up front, you are going to save yourselves multiple times over should the regulator come to call or ask you information. And actually, another place for um, looking at reasonable positions, what the regulatory expectations are, is the Market Watch uh, newsletters that the FCA puts out. And, and the one I'm thinking of in particular for this one is Market Watch 66, which came out earlier this year. And that was where the regulator was focusing on hybrid working arrangements and the need to be able to oversee and record any transactions that happen when your traders happen to be sitting at home or wherever they're not in the office. Now, to be very clear, the FCA, like an awful lot of other regulators, are completely geography neutral. They really don't mind where you are physically, but doesn't change the fact that all of the rules still actually apply. Um, and you, as head of compliance or head of risk, you have to be able to evidence that you've still been able to oversee, supervise, evidence, record keeping, 
trade and transaction reporting, the whole nine yards still needs to happen, no matter where somebody happens to be sitting. Now, the one sort of nugget within MarketWatch 66 was the use of apps, specifically WhatsApp. And the regulator gave a very clear warning that it had found rather too many people, brackets, traders, um, using WhatsApp alongside the their work systems to trade for their own account. And back to what Rachel said at the start of this, the regulator can see that. They have now got very good systems. And they, I'm not saying necessarily the UK regulator can see every piece of market abuse, but they can find it very quickly when they start looking. So be aware that hybrid working arrangements and how that fits into the whole approach to the prevention of financial crime, specifically market abuse and market manipulation, and with a overlay, if you like, of a post-pandemic review, that is absolutely in the regulatory spotlight just at the moment. Um, I'm just going to move on and touch on market uh, market abuse regulation in Brussels. Um, to date, we've heard very little about what may or may not change in the UK, which probably gives us a hint, probably not a lot, but it is under review again in Europe. And there is a big focus on really the governance around things, what expectations are, um, insider lists, where the firewalls are, all of that sort of thing. And just moving on to another case, the UBS compliance officer case uh, came back around actually last December when it went to the Court of Appeal and the Court of Appeal upheld the convictions of Fabiana Abdelmalik and Walid Kucher for insider dealing. And they've been each convicted of five offences and sentenced to three years in jail. Now, in a nutshell, uh, Abdel Malik, very senior compliance officer at UBS, Chuker, um, family friend, day trader in financial securities. They colluded. Um, far too much information flew, flowed out of the door of UBS that should never have done so. And the profits were about 1.4 million. And in summing all of this up, Mark Stewart, who is the Executive Director of Enforcement and Market Oversight at the FCA, said the case also demonstrates the FCA's determination to ensure those who abuse our markets, like these defendants, are held to account in accordance with the law, especially given the deliberate abuse of trust and the use of sophisticated tactics to avoid detection. Now, I'll pop the link uh, to this in the show notes, along with a couple of others. But this is one of those cases where it really would pay dividends for heads of compliance to go through the list of actions and indeed inactions from these two defendants and make sure that those sophisticated tactics that Mark Stewart was talking about, that it couldn't happen with you, that you have got those detective preventative controls in place and working that means you have shut those possible doors to all of this. Rachel, moving on. Yes, uh, just to pick up on the Mark Stewart uh, quote, uh, one of the things that came up in the uh, hedge fund manager spoofing case with the um, contracts for differences, the FCA made a point of mentioning that they picked up that uh, abuse on their own system. Um and 
it'll be interesting, you know, as and when the case with the brothers uh, and the insider dealing comes out, you know, to find out some more details about how that was detected. But it could it could have been also um, with uh, the FCA's uh, in-house system as well, which probably wouldn't be a great thing for the um, law firm and the uh, investment bank involved. Uh, anyway, the the brothers are on trial, not their employers. Um, I was going to talk a little bit about uh, some of the goings-on in the United States and just touch on something we've mentioned before in podcasts um, in the Compliance Clarified, which is the kind of muddying of the waters uh, introduced from uh, this meme stock phenomenon and people touting uh, stocks on YouTube and Reddit forums and uh, other kind of online uh, venues. Uh, So obviously uh, the GameStop uh, phenomenon at the beginning of the year was something that kind of questioned our whole world in terms of what is market abuse? Is somebody sitting in their basement uh, making videos telling everybody to buy GameStop, uh, AMC, and there was another one involving the silver market. Is that market abuse? Is that pumping and dumping? And um, what uh, uh, Stephen Mayor, the then ESMA chair, said to econ, um, I think it was in February or March this year, was, yeah, yeah, it is. Um, So that's something that has come up in the um, Roaring Kitty Mass Mutual uh, case in the United States. Now, the Massachusetts uh, financial services regulator just fined Mass Mutual, who employed the Roaring Kitty trainer, (laughs) Can't la- I can't say that without laughing, but his name is Keith Gill, and he was uh, making, he made 10 days worth of YouTube videos touting various stocks and driving this, this meme stock craze at the beginning of the year. Now, he was a marketer at Mass Mutual. <laughs> when you read the... Uh, the enforcement notice on Mass Mutual, they were just fined $4 million for systems and control failures and failure to uh, oversee employees and detect uh, employee trading. They didn't know, they had no idea that this guy had done all these YouTube videos and was putting on really big trades. Like one of the ones mentioned in the final notice is $700,000. the 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 enforcement notice is pretty dry, but you could even feel some uh, disbelief coming through from the uh, Massachusetts financial services regulator. And this just kind of top level view of the United States, the SEC, CFTC are prosecuting people for market abuse and insider dealing all day, every day. I mean, you'll see loads and loads of fines. What's new in terms of market abuse is this question of what are people doing on social media, uh, this 
who are is who are promoting uh, meme stocks? Where is the line? Firms need to know about this. Also, on some of these new, um, like the Robin Hoods of the world, uh, what we call neo brokers, we have people who are trading influencers, people who put themselves out there to say, copy my trades. Some, I think compliance officers should be concerned that some of their employees are on these uh, neo-broking sites, uh, potentially uh, pumping and dumping, putting themselves out there as uh, experts, getting a following. People need to think about, do I want uh, one of my traders on one of these platforms essentially having a side hustle, you know, how do I know what the, uh, what this person is doing? Uh, I think this is something that will potentially come up more and more. Lindsay Rogerson and I wrote about it a couple months ago. And at the time the FCA said that they were going to start looking at some people who put themselves out as influencers. It's not just because they might be working inside a bank, but they might be giving unauthorized investment advice. <laughs> so that's another thing that invest, uh, compliance officers need to think about. Do they have people running a side hustle on a neo broker giving out investment advice that they have no business of doing? And they're also having their profile. Oh, I work at a big investment bank or I'm a former investment banker trader, or I used to work at a hedge fund. Maybe, you know, I think there's this question of identity. Who are these? Who is out there? Uh, the systems and controls in terms of onboarding uh, people onto these neo broker platforms aren't always the best. <laughs> so, like I said, like identity is really fluid here. Um, it's it's going to be difficult for firms to trace, even though. Uh, Mass Mutual was um, criticized for not knowing about what Keith Gill was doing. Um, how are they to, supposed to know that somebody is out there claiming to be Roaring Kitty uh, unless they're tracking everybody's every move? Um, I think what the regulator would say is, well, you, they didn't even have like the policies and procedures in place to even get them you know, halfway there. So as Susanna was saying about um, when talking about the uh, Abdel Malik and Chukar case, people need to go back and they need to check out some of these newer uh, threats and do that gap analysis on that as well. And again, in terms of market sur or trade surveillance, you need to be thinking about what kind of scenarios um, might need to be added or recalibrated um, in the in in the systems. Um, kind of anticipate or think about how you might program that in and have a talk with your vendor about that, um, because. You can't be tracking 
every step that one of your employees is taking on the internet. So you've got to, you've got to be careful. And I think part of this is a culture thing. You need to be, you know, making it clear to people what is acceptable and what's not. And you have to have a clear policy about this kind of activity. Susanna? Thank you. Yes, I have to say my my brain was ticking very fast in terms of all the things compliance officers now need to think about all of this. And actually, I'm about to add... It's it's a grey area. It's It's a grey area, I think. And and it's not only a grey area, it's an area where the regulatory expectations shift. I mean, this is the black and white of the rule book hasn't actually changed very much, but how circumstances have changed, influencers and memes and the Robin Hood debacle, that has all changed how we perceive all of this and what yeah, and the you expectation yeah. is for firms. Yeah. And you mentioned WhatsApp and other kinds of personal device communications this is the kind of uh, something I think we've talked about before on the podcast, but like you say, the black and white of the regulation hasn't changed. And that's because it is adaptable in a certain extent. When they say you need to be recording all communications, of course, that means WhatsApp. That means you need to not be, um, using personal phones, or if you are, you have to be recording that too. And increasingly there are technology platforms that provide for this. I have no idea how much they cost. I'm assuming it's not cheap, but it's not like you can't do it. And if you don't want to spend the money, then you have to be really careful and have these policies and procedures make it crystal clear what the expectations are. Otherwise, the regulators will come knocking on your door. And you really won't like the conversation that follows after the knock on the door if you haven't got this stuff in place. Um, Because not only will you, your employees potentially have been able to commit market abuse, but you, the firm, you are absolutely in the headlights then for governance, for systems and controls, record keeping, failure to do pretty much Uncle Tom Cobbley and all at that point. Um, so yeah, I, with everything else that is now going on in the world, you really do still need to focus on the potential for market abuse. Um, now we're moving on to the takeaways for compliance officers. So I, I feel I ought to apologize up front. I'm just adding to the list that people need to think about. I mean, cause one of the key things with market abuse, particularly market abuse investigations is that, Not every time, but a number of times dawn raids come into this and dawn raids are kind of like disaster recovery or business continuity. You really hope you never need to invoke the policies and procedures, but oh my goodness, you are happy you've got them if you do need to use them. Um, I'll put uh, one of my more recent articles um, about market abuse and dawn raids uh, into the show notes, but I'll just run you through a bit of a flavour of of some of the things you're going to have to think about. And picking up on what Rachel was saying, absolutely, you need to have a specific policy for handling dawn raids. And given how serious that the the whole issue can be, I'd suggest that's a board and senior manager level 
policy. They need to be briefed in detail. They also need to expressly confirm their knowledge and understanding of the agreed approach and understand in practice what it means for them. I then have that Dawn Raid policy as part of any annual reaffirmation of policies, pop it into the induction training and starter pack, the usual sort of things on policies and procedures, the key policies and procedures. I'd also recommend it's part of whenever you open a new office, you need to have specific detail of a Dawn's Raids policy tailored for that office. Now, some firms are big enough that they have an entire building. Um, everybody from the cleaner to the security guard works for them. However, there's an awful lot of firms where they share offices, they share reception staff, security guards. You need very distinct policies and procedures um, communicated to the front desk staff at that point. And the, the same goes for if you're serving legal or court documents or served legal or court documents. So remember about that. <clears throat> this one is probably stating the entirely obvious, but your Dawn Raids policies need to be tailored for each jurisdiction in which the firm, that's probably the easy bit, has a physical presence, or its assets, or its data. Don't forget the stuff that isn't on your doorstep with all of this. And that leads into, don't forget your Dawn Raids policy should cover any outsourced operations. After all, that may be where the relevant data is stored and therefore that's where the regulators or whoever will go looking. So if you're outsourcing in a different jurisdiction, remember your Dawn Raids policy needs to cover that. Communication, absolutely key part of successful management of any Dawn Raid. Policy should clearly state who should be contacted in what order. Now, this is one of those areas where you really do need to keep it up to date. And, you know, if somebody's on holiday, who do you talk to instead? You know, that sort of thing. Bear in mind that communications policy may include other regulators. Uh, you might need, if you're, if you are a UK firm, say, and your French operation is raided by the AMF, I suggest telling the FCA in the UK is really quite a good idea. It's that sort of communication. Equally, your firm's own public relations department. And then lastly, keep as many records as you possibly can in the forms of copies of documents taken, notes of which section of firm were visited, which computers or other equipment were taken. Basically, try and get a real sense of what has been taken as part of any dawn raid. And I know that that was a really long shopping list and there will be an article in the show notes. But the long and the short of it is don't let the poor handling of a dawn raid turn a possibly bad situation with regard to potential market abuse into a complete blooming disaster. You can do things about this and you can put in place things that will help you manage it, hopefully distinctly better. Right, I'll stop giving any more, even more things uh, for firms to do and their compliance officers. Rachel, um, takeaways for compliance officers? Well, I'll just circle back to what I was saying about personal account dealing and how the muddies, the waters have been muddied uh, thanks to uh, the stock trading, uh, meme stock trading, uh, people touting stocks on YouTube and other social media. Uh, for, firms need to have a social media policy potentially for their 
employees to, because you cannot just monitor every single step your employees taking. First of all, I mean, if people are using avatars or pseudonyms or whatever, it's, it's going to be difficult for you to find out who they are. Um, so you need to have a policy. You need to have people to potentially tell them, tell you what your, their social media is. So if you're picking up on something on your uh, surveillance systems, you can go and check out their Twitter handle or check out uh, their YouTube channel or TikTok or whatever it is. Um, and see what they've been up to. I don't think you need to uh, have any kind of fancy, all-encompassing web, web scraping tool to, like I said, track your employees' every move. But you need to think about this, and that's what the Mass Mutual find shows. Um, I think also, just in terms of uh, the... Uh, the recent uh, working from home phenomena linked to the pandemic, uh, I think firms need to uh, reassess how they're going to be managing uh, market abuse uh, risk in a hybrid working environment. You don't want to be in a situation where uh, you loosen up your systems and controls on a home, somebody who's working a couple days in the office and then come uh, working from home a couple days, you need to make sure that you're secure on both ends. Um, you might want to have a talk with them about, um, information security. Uh, we've talked about this before. I mean, if you're living in shared accommodation, you want to make sure that people are being careful about documents, uh, people being mindful that somebody could be looking over their shoulder at their screen to see what they're doing. Uh, this is something that is still very front of mind for your, uh, uh, for the, for the regulator. They just put a note out about hybrid working arrangements and, uh, working from home a few weeks ago. Um, just one thing, uh, Susanna, if somebody is working from home, uh, and the FCA did mention in this document they put out a few weeks ago that they would, if you are, you know, working at home all the time, or if your business is in your home now, that they would come and visit you at home. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, maybe firms need to think about that in terms of Dawn Raids too. Um, yes, what if you add that in. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, you're, so, you know, so your FX traders having a, well, it wouldn't be FX, but you're so one of your equities traders is having a morning coffee all of a sudden you know the local police are knocking down the door and yeah. so that is going to be tough because that person might be on their own i mean i this is obviously wildly hypothetical but you know maybe if you are where the data is and that mm -hmm. doesn't really matter whether it's an outsourced location somebody's garden shed where they happen to be working that's yeah. where they think the data is located that they need to prove mm -hmm. market abuse or manipulation, insider dealing, whatever particular mm -hmm. facet we're talking about. They will do it. You know, yeah. they'll get their uh, search warrants and everything else in a row and go for it. 
Um, yeah. It's a very well, high it... regulatory priority. Yeah, definitely. Uh, that's came out in the Mark Stewart quote, and uh, you can see that they, when people are caught doing market abuse or either convicted or they go through the civil enforcement process. We've seen a couple of outcomes where you're fined and banned, which is career ending, or you go to jail. Equally not nice. Mm -hmm. So, And equally career ending, I would suggest. (laughs) Well, career ending in financial services terms. Yeah, exactly. Well, maybe. They all go and work in crypto after that, apparently. (laughs) and on that uh, cheerful note thank you very much Rachel (laughs) that was a fascinating conversation as ever and and thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Clarified hope you found it both useful and interesting Um, as we've mentioned throughout I'll pop links to articles and so on which go into a bit more detail on those issues we discussed into the episode notes I'll also include a link for further information on Thomson Reuters regulatory intelligence itself And last but not least, as ever, we would very much appreciate it if you take the time to review the podcast and let us know any suggestions for topics to be discussed in future episodes. Thanks for listening. Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence.